All right, hi everyone and welcome to this HSC enrichment session on Richard III and Looking for Richard. My name is Dr. Stephanie Russo. I'm a senior lecturer in the Department of Media, Communications, Creative Arts, Languages and Literature. I'm also the Discipline Chair of Literature. And I'm here today, to, as I said, to talk to you about Richard III and Looking for Richard, which is a pair of texts that I think really work beautifully together in that looking for Richard allows us a way to think about the ways in which we read and understand Richard III. Okay, so let's think first about Richard III as a history play, because I know that one of the things that you have to talk about um, in your HSC um, studies is thinking about genre and form. So Richard III is a history play. It is based on English history. These things, not precisely as they happened, um, as they are represented happened, but these things happened. Richard III was a real king. And we know that because Richard III is a huge media sensation. A couple of years ago, I think it was almost 10 years ago now, he was, his bones, his skeleton were found, was found underneath a car park. Um, and that caused a huge media sensation. A lot of people were very interested in the discovery of this king's bones literally buried um, beneath a car park in Leicester. But let's think about the play as history for a minute. So Shakespeare wrote a couple of genres of plays. He wrote comedies, he wrote tragedies, he wrote histories. Um, and they're also the problem plays, but we won't get into them at the moment. So what's interesting about Richard III is that it's the only history play, it's the only play based, you know, that his work functions as essentially historical fiction to be given the label of tragedy in the first folio. Okay, so it is a history play, but it is also a tragedy. And for me, the closest kind of analogue to Richard III is Macbeth. I think it works quite similarly to Macbeth because it's a tyrant tragedy. It, the play is structured around the rise and the fall of a single protagonist, and that is the classic tragic structure. We start with the, with the um, hero um, wanting power, as he does at the beginning of the, as Richard III does at the beginning of the play. We, we chart his rise to power. He, the apex, the middle of the play is when he has attained power, and then we get the fall. So we get this tragic arc overlaid over the known historical facts, okay? And this is a tyrant tragedy. Richard is a tyrant. Uh, we know that from the beginning. We know he's an unscrupulous man. Um, he's often compared to a vice figure. So the vice figure comes from the medieval, um, medieval mystery plays. The vice figure is the embodiment of all of evil, right? The vice figure is, is kind of the literal embodiment of everything that is bad, right? And Richard III, in many ways, is a kind of traditional vice figure. And we know that because he's monstrous. He is physically monstrous. Now, this isn't an idea that we're very comfortable with these days. But in the early modern period, the monstrousness of the body was believed to be tied to the monstrousness of um, the soul. So if you had some kind of deformity or abnormality, physical abnormality, that was a manifestation of the sickness of your soul. Now we find that abhorrent, right? We find this idea that because Richard has a humpback and so forth and he's stooped and he you know, walks in this laborious fashion, we find the, uh, the suggestion that that is somehow a reflection of his character really abhorrent, but that's not how people felt at the time. 
So he is a literally monstrous character. He's also Machiavellian. Now, Machiavellian, as, as many of you all know, was a early modern uh, political, Italian political theorist, and he argued um, that in order to attain power, um, princes had to do exactly whatever they had to do, right? So that meant that there was nothing that, um, there was no, no action that was off limits in order to attain power. Now, he wasn't necessarily advocating for that, but he was saying that that's how power works. Once you get power, you're un, you become unscrupulous in the maintenance of that power and that you'll basically do what has to be done. You will, you know, seduce people if you need to. You will um, kill people if you need to. You will use every tool in the book in order to retain and keep that power. So this is exactly what Richard III does, right? He's a Machiavellian figure. He is interested in power for power's sake. He will do whatever it takes to get power. And we see him deploy that. We see him as an actor almost, right? He is so um, adept at manipulating the way he perceive, he's perceived by others. So when he needs to be, he can be very persuasive he can be very charming he can be almost sweet when he needs to be but of course we know that that is always done not because he's actually interested in the other person but because he is a Machiavellian because he is um, out for whatever he can get now I think it's also important to remember that when Shakespeare is writing history He's not writing history as it was. That's never the case with historical fiction because the known facts of history aren't necessarily amenable to the shape of drama or to the shape of fiction. So Shakespeare's concern isn't really on the known facts of history, but instead the creation of a structure befitting a tragedy. Okay, he has this overlying tragic structure that he needs to wrap around Richard's story. So what he does is he manipulates the known facts of history. Remember, this was quite recent history for him, right? He was writing um, about 110 years after these events. So it wasn't, you know, yesterday, but it wasn't remote history. It was kind of modern-ish history. Um, so he's applying a tragic structure on the known facts of history. And that means the characters are brought into the story anachronistically. That means the characters are brought into the story when they wouldn't be in the story at all, just because they're necessary to the plot. So, for example, Margaret, the wife of, of um, Henry VI, she appears in the plays as Harbinger of Doom, right? But she's actually left England. Well, if you look at the historical record, she's actually left England well for them. Right? She wasn't there. She wasn't hanging around the court. Why would she be there? Why would the, the, the queen, um, the previous queen, be just sort of, looming about the castle, making dire predictions and saying, you're evil, you will be overthrown, right? It doesn't make any kind of practical sense, but she has an important dramatic sense. And this is why, again, I think the, the comparison to Macbeth for me is really instructive because she almost acts like the witches. She makes prophecies. She um, can see what other characters can't see, okay? She knows that this is going to go bad. And so she has a kind of dramatic um, plot. She has a sort of dramatic function in the story, um, but that doesn't necessarily align with history. Okay. Now, I think that it's important to think about Shakespeare's purposes in 
constructing the play as both a history and a tragedy and thinking about the ways in which history is manipulated in order to make sense of the, the story. Now that brings me to a huge question when it comes to Richard III, which is, is Richard III Tudor propaganda? Now, often people do describe Richard III as Tudor propaganda because it is technically about the rise of the Tudors. So Richmond becomes Henry VII by the end of the play. Henry VII is the father of the Tudor dynasty. His son, Henry VIII, of course, is the Henry VIII that we all know as having six wives, etc. So a lot, of, and you know, we eventually get to um, Henry VIII's daughter Elizabeth, right? And he, Elizabeth, is on the throne when Shakespeare is writing Richard III. So of course, right, his writing under Elizabeth, who is a Tudor, he's going to be very nice about the Tudors, right? Now, Richard III is about the Wars of the Roses, which is the historic conflict between the houses of Lancaster and York, the Cousins' War, as it's sometimes called, because it's essentially a war between cousins that are all descended from Edward III. And so, you know, the idea that Henry VII brought about the end of this historic century-long conflict, not century-long, but nearly century-long conflict called the Wars of the Roses um, is really significant because we can see Henry VII in that hero figure that brings peace and stability to the land. However, what falls, what begins to complicate this picture of Shakespeare writing Tudor propaganda is the fact that Richard III is extremely interesting. Um, and I mean that as a character. Richard III might be a vice figure, he might be a Machiavellian figure, he might be the embodiment of all that is evil, he might be the murderer of the princes in the tower. People still um, fight about that, whether the actual historic Richard III actually did kill the princes in the tower. But certainly the character of Richard III in Shakespeare's hands becomes one of Shakespeare's most fascinating characters. In fact, I think he probably is, or is certainly one of Shakespeare's most revered characters. People love Richard III, right? He's a source of fascination for centuries. He's charming. He has a way with words. He's much cleverer than anybody around him, right? He's an absolutely fascinating character. In real life, there is, of course, a group of um, a dedicated Richard III fans called, who call themselves the Ricardians. And they're fans of Richard, the actual historic figure, but they also take a lot of um, interest in the way in which Richard III presents himself as um, in, in the play. Okay, so if we're thinking about Richard III as one of Shakespeare's most fascinating characters, we also have to then think about Richmond. Richmond, who is Henry VII, who is the future Henry VII, is incredibly boring. I'm not the only person to say or think that. He's just really flat. And that's because he's presented on the surface as this epitome of good, the epitome of heroism. He's going to save England. But that makes him incredibly boring, right? So on the surface, is this good propaganda? Well, okay. Richard is bad and um, Richmond is good, right? But if you look a bit deeper at these questions, actually Richard is fascinating and Richmond is incredibly boring, right? 
So I think that the, the extent to which you can see Richard III as Tudor propaganda really becomes problematised because nobody reads Richard III for Henry VII. We read Richard III for Richard III. He dominates the action. He talks to us a lot in soliloquies, okay? So the use of the soliloquy as a way of garnering sympathy is incredibly significant, right? So when a character is spilling all of their private information at you through a soliloquy, that's how you're brought into a sympathetic engagement with that character, right? Because you know something about that character that nobody else on stage knows. It's a way of shortening the gap between um, character and actor. So there's a, a complicity between Rich, Richard as an actor, right? and the audience as us. And that's set up straight away in the first soliloquy. And Richard III is quite unusual to start with a soliloquy by the main character. Usually the main character sort of comes into the drama a little bit later. If you think about something like Romeo and Juliet, we have a prologue. If you think about um, the other plays, it's a while before we meet Hamlet, it's a while before we meet Othello, we hear about them before we meet them. Here we go, Richard III straight away, bang, into his first soliloquy. And he's talking to the audience and bringing the audience in to his plans, bringing the audience into his head. So all of that combines to make Richard really attractive to us as a character. So perhaps while it's important for Shakespeare to flatter the Tudors, and of course it's important for him to flatter the Tudors, he is writing under a Tudor queen, right? And um, remember that plays were much more kind of monitored um, in the early modern period to make sure that they weren't kind of seditious or anything like that. Um, it's politically necessary for him to flatter the Tudors, but Shakespeare is always better than that. He's always much more nuanced than that. Okay, he never takes the easy route. It's never a case of, okay, this is a bad man. He does bad things. He dies. We are happy. We are drawn into Richard III because he's so interesting. Shakespeare is never straightforward. Shakespeare never writes um, in a way that suggests that you shouldn't sympathise with the villains. Shakespeare is always interested in nuance. Okay, he's always, and he's always interested in the bad guy. All of his tragedies feature characters who act badly. All of his tragedies are about um, that kind of line between sympathy and judgment. Think about, again, Macbeth. We both sympathise with him and we judge him. Othello, we sympathise with him and we judge him. Hamlet, the same. Leah, the same. We always have that mixture and that kind of nuanced um, perspective on all of Shakespeare's villains. And Richard III is no exception. So I think to say in a straightforward sense that this is Tudor propaganda is really quite problematic because Shakespeare's never that simple. Okay, he always lives in the nuances. All right, let's look to Looking for Richard. Now, Looking for Richard is a really interesting play, uh, interesting film or docudrama, right? And what I wanted to talk about in relation to Looking for Richard is this idea of reception theory. Reception theory is the idea that it's just as interesting and as important to think about how texts are read as it is how texts are written. And reception theory places all the emphasis on how texts are received over time and how that reception of texts can change over time. Now, we know ourselves when we're reading that sometimes when you read a book at different points in your life, it can seem like a different book, right? I'm sure you've had that experience. You might read a book 
as a child and then come back to it as an adult. And it's the same book. Nothing about it has changed. But your perspective on it completely shifts because you're at a different point in your life. You have different experiences, etc. Reception theory takes it as a kind of given. The texts change over time, not because the text itself changes, the words on the page remain the same, but because we change and we bring different things to readings of the text. Okay. And texts need to be read in order to mean something. If texts aren't read, they don't do anything. They just sit there on the shelf. Texts need to be read and interpreted. And reception theory is really interested in the ways in which texts are read and interpreted in different ways at different points of time, right? So something like Richard III reads very differently for us in the 21st century than it did for Shakespeare's audiences who are living with maybe not the direct memory, but certainly the, the close cultural memory of the Wars of the Roses, the close cultural memory of the Tudors. They're living under the Tudors, right? So reception theory is very interested in how texts transition over time. And looking for Richard is a really interesting example of reception because it puts all the emphasis on what Richard III means and how it is read at different periods of time in different places. Okay, that is what the whole film is about. How can we read and understand Richard? How can we, um, how can we make Richard mean something to our contemporary audiences? Why do we keep going back to Richard III? Why is, it, is this such a focus of attention? I mean, when you think about it, a lot of Shakespeare's texts have disappeared. You know, Shakespeare is always considered kind of this immortal genius that, whose texts have survived over time. But it also remains true that some of his texts didn't survive over time. Have you ever seen or read Pericles? No. Have you ever seen or read King John? No. Have you ever seen or read The Two Noble Kinsmen? Probably not. Um, many of his texts have survived over 500 years and many of his texts haven't. They still exist, but we don't read them or respond to them in the ways in which we do other texts. And Richard III is one of these texts that has lived. So why? What is it about Richard III that is so compelling to us still? And that's a lot of what Richard the, uh, of what looking for Richard is about. I think the active verb looking is really important here. Um, the emphasis is on Richard III as a living text. It's a text that's constantly being read and revised and made anew. They're looking for Richard. Richard isn't something that is set down, right? Richard isn't the play and the character isn't something that sort of exists that we need to kind of dig out. It's an, there's an active process of interpretation and finding of the character. Okay, but Al Pacino had a choice here, right? He could have just made a film about, he could have just filmed Richard III as an adaptation. Right. He clearly knows the play very well. He was obviously engaged with putting on or interpreting um, Richard III as a play. So why didn't he just film the story, right? Why did he make this docudrama, this hybrid form? Um, why was that important for him? Well, Arguably, the docudrama, for, the docudrama form of the film allows for a deeper exploration of the play and a contemplation of Shakespeare's role in the modern world. What I find really interesting about the, the um, film is the way in which we have competing notions of Shakespeare are allowed to just sit there together and we're not told this is the correct interpretation and this is not. We have the actors fighting 
right? We're not sort of fighting, but disagreeing um, about ways in which to interpret the play. We have um, we have actors putting forth different perspectives. We have um, scholars putting forth different perspectives. We have the people in the street. You know, he goes and interviews some people and they say, Shakespeare, that's boring. And then we also have other people who um, say, for example, the man who makes a really passionate defence of Shakespeare and says, you know, oh, my gosh, um, he is the person who taught us how to feel. He's the person, you know, every, every um, we don't have enough empathy in the world, but all of this empathy is there in Shakespeare. So we have all of these different perspectives of Shakespeare that are just allowed to sit next to each other and the film doesn't give us one. And that's what an adaptation would do. An adaptation, you have to decide, you have to make all sorts of decisions about how you interpret the play. But in a um, docudrama such as this, you don't have to make all of those decisions. You can allow space for competing um, understandings of what the play means. Okay, another important thing to think about is geographical differences. There are a lot of geographical differences in how Shakespeare is read and interpreted, and we see that discussed quite explicitly in the play, yeah, sorry, in the film. We get people saying, what does Shakespeare mean in America? And then we get, say, Kenneth Branagh is in the film talking about how when he was growing up in England, Shakespeare was a very stiff kind of formal thing and then he went to America and it's a bit more playful and so forth. So what does it mean to stage or think about Shakespeare in different places? What is the difference between thinking about Shakespeare in England versus thinking about Shakespeare in America? And for us, thinking about Shakespeare in Australia. And so you can trace cultural shifts, really interesting cultural shifts in the reception of Shakespeare through the different ways that people respond to the play, so through interviews, etc., And it allows space for uncertainty, as I said. There is no one right interpretation, but instead lots of space to play with different ideas, to think about the role of women, for example. So Winona Ryder makes a defence of her character. Um, we get other defences of the other female characters. We get, you know, some of the male actors saying, oh, she's just hysterical, and then the, the female actors making a defence of the women in the play. What I also think is quite interesting about looking for Richard is that it really focuses on the idea of interpretation um, and adaptation as a collaboration. It's not just Pacino kind of saying, well, this is my interpretation of the play. You have to do it this way. But there is instead a real collaboration process that's going on here between the actors and figuring out a way forward and how to stage the, their film. And that actually mirrors the circumstances of production of early modern plays. So one thing that's often noted, um, noted about early modern plays is that they were collaborative ventures. So it wasn't a case of the writer would go away and just write the play and then give it to the actors and the actors would just speak the lines. The actors often wrote things themselves or changed lines. Um, Shakespeare worked collaborative with many, collaboratively with many other writers at the time. So, um, for example, legendarily, it's possible that the witches' scenes um, in Macbeth weren't written by Shakespeare, but were written by a friend of his because he was an expert at writing witcher scenes and Shakespeare wasn't so much interested in, in that. Um, so playwriting itself was quite collaborative in the early modern period. Um, Shakespeare was an actor himself, for example. Um, so I think that there's a real nice mirror, mirroring of that collaborative process in playwriting and in the filmmaking of um, Looking for Richard. All right, I wanted to conclude by thinking about some myths about Shakespeare. 
students often say to me that Shakespeare is in Old English or some other form of English. That is not true. Shakespeare is written in English, right? Shakespeare is writing in English. He might be using some words that you might be unfamiliar with and he might be using different um, forms perhaps of English than you're used to, but he's writing in English. And that's connected to my next point, which is that Shakespeare is not too hard to understand. Shakespeare is explicable. You have to get used to the rhythms of the language and you have to get your head around some of the references that you might not understand. But I think it's really important to emphasize that Shakespeare is understandable. He's writing for the popular or audience member, right? He's not writing for the elite. He's writing popular entertainment that everybody was invited to and expected to be interested in, or he hoped that people would be interested in it. This is popular fiction of the time. He's not inexplicable. You can get there. You just have to take it slowly, consult your notes and sources, and um, allow the language to become part of your head, to filter through um, your consciousness. The rhythms become quite clear to you quite quickly. Shakespeare is also very much connected to our world. He's connected to our world through his expression of power, love, um, sex, politics, ambition, all of the murder, crime, all of these themes are still themes that we, we see playing out in our modern world. Shakespeare is incredibly relevant to our modern world because he's interested in all of these ideas that we're still interested in. And that's why we keep revisiting him even 500 years later. Of course, another um, prevailing myth was that Shakespeare wasn't Shakespeare. Again, untrue. Shakespeare was Shakespeare. Um, people just have many strange conspiracy theories about him. Um, another myth is that Shakespeare was a solitary genius. No, he was not. As I said, he worked in collaboration with many other um, playwrights, actors, etc. He worked with um, pre-existing materials. He was um, uh, really embedded in his early modern context in various ways. And the final myth is that there is a right way to understand Shakespeare's plays. There is no right way to understand Shakespeare's plays. That's what makes them so fascinating. They are ambiguous, they are full of gaps, and they reward argument, debate, and different ways of reading, which is exactly what Looking for Richard is about. Before we go, I just wanted to draw your attention to more information about English at Macquarie Uni. Um, we have a Twitter account at MQ English. I've put up the address there for our website um, for the McCall, which is our department, uh, departmental website. We also have a podcast called From the Lighthouse, and you can email me at stephanie.russo at mq.edu.au um, if you'd like any more information about our programs and think about majoring in English. English at university is fun and ask you to think about ideas and exercise your creativity in exactly the same way as we see in Looking for Richard. We're not interested in the right way to think about a book. We're interested in you and your ideas. I hope this has been useful to you. Thank you so much. Good luck with your HSA.